from the Los Angeles Times, this is The Envelope, the podcast, your ultimate guide to award season. I'm one of your hosts, Yvonne Villarreal. And I'm your other host, Mark Olson. Every week, our podcast showcases key voices across both TV and film. And today, we are ringing in the new year with a conversation with writer and director Kemp Powers. He wrote the screenplay for the film One Night in Miami, which is about a real night in the 1960s at a meeting between Malcolm X, Jim Brown, Sam Cooke, and Cassius Clay on the cusp of becoming Muhammad Ali. It's adapted from Kemp's play of the same name. I spoke to him about why he decided to focus on the real-life friendship of these iconic figures. The decision I came to was that I just wanted to hopefully expand the world so that people understood why each of these four men were in the mental place that they were on that night. And also allow people to see some of the positive and negative fallout of the decisions that were made on that night. Things that I wasn't able to do in the play. Mark's conversation with Kemp is coming up in just a couple minutes. For your awards consideration, Lovecraft Country, the HBO original drama that Rolling Stone hails as a genre-bending tour de force. Jonathan Majors and Journey Smollett give unmissable performances that USA Today calls superb. Now streaming on HBO Max. Before we get into Mark's conversation with Kemp Powers, let's first turn things over to our critic Glenn for Glenn Whipp's Awards Minute. The Los Angeles film critics and the New York film critics have weighed in on what they think is the year's best movies. And New York gave it to First Cow, Best Picture. LA gave its top prize to Steve McQueen's Small Axe Movie Anthology. Both groups gave its director prize to Chloe Zhao, the filmmaker behind Nomadland. Relatively absent from both groups' lists was Mank, David Fincher's look at the writer behind Citizen Kane, which um, not that long ago was viewed as the frontrunner to win Best Picture. But since it dropped on Netflix, critics have kind of picked apart the movie, found fault here and there, And audiences have largely stayed away. It's black and white. It's kind of about a niche subject matter that not a whole lot of people living in the 21st century can immediately latch onto. Um, So it's struggled to find an audience on Netflix. I mean, I still think that the movie can find its footing and could turn into something of an Oscar powerhouse. I mean, I would definitely think that its actors, Gary Oldman and Amanda Seyfried, will probably earn nominations. But could it also be one of those movies like The Irishman that pulls in a ton of nominations and then comes away Oscar night without winning anything? Which would be a shame because it's it's really beautifully crafted, smart look at old Hollywood. I know it's in black and white. I know you maybe you've started to watch it and then go, ah, I would encourage you to finish watching it. It's a great film. Thanks, Glenn. Uh, I just want to let you know, you still were not under a minute, but that's okay because we love you. 
Okay, Mark, let's get to your interview with Kemp Powers. He also directed the new Pixar film Soul, which came out on Christmas and which you know I loved. This is a film that I really wish I was able to watch with my nieces and nephews together. But, you know, we haven't mastered the watch party situation in quarantine, so we'll just have to do it another time. But it's amazing that he did both One Night in Miami and co-directed Soul. And you talk about both projects in your interview with him. So let's get to it. Kemp, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. You have two much-anticipated movies that are coming out during this season. What is this moment like for you? What is it like to have two movies coming out at the same time? I mean, surreal, obviously. That wasn't the plan. Um, The the world we're living in, you know, has plans of its own. Uh, Soul was initially supposed to come out in June, of course. And obviously with COVID, the theater industry has changed dramatically. So I had no idea. We None of us had any idea that this is where we were going to land. Similarly, you know, One Night in Miami, it was a film that we were we were filming. We were just lucky in that we wrapped principal photography in New Orleans. I think it was about five days before the lockdown. So we, I, I just think it's pure coincident, dumb luck, I guess, that they're both coming out <laughs> this year. I, I feel lucky that they're coming out, period because I have so many colleagues, so many friends who have been working on films that are in various stages of completion. And look, we had to do two pickup days for One Night in Miami after a COVID safe pickup days. So I know how difficult it is to do things um, in this new COVID world in which we're living. Like, you know, we hear a lot about TV shows and films that are back in production. And I don't think people necessarily understand how much slower the process is, how much more challenging the process is, you know, we just did a COVID safe stage reading of a play of mine yesterday at the Kirk Douglas Theater. And I mean, staying in certain zones, you know what I mean? It's a it's a lot. So I think we were very lucky in that we were able to actually finish both of these and, and get them out. And on top of that, Soul had been selected for the Cannes Film Festival back in the spring, which, of course, the festival was then canceled. That must have been a real roller coaster to go through of having the movie selected and then it, the festival doesn't happen. Oh, tell me. I mean, that's the most bittersweet element of it. I was so I've never been to the Cannes Film Festival. I got to admit, I was super excited about it to the point that I went and got my first custom bespoke suit specifically to go to the Cannes Film Festival. But, you know, I just say that I've got a nice suit in the closet for one of these days when we're able to to go out into the world and gather again. So, again, it's, it's I think it's better to really accentuate the positives and how lucky we are. <laughs> rather than the the negatives. So you haven't had a chance to wear the suit yet? No. That would be especially painful, I think. I know even just for myself, I like have some clothes that I've bought during lockdown and you like you are kind of like just really waiting to wear them. Yeah, and it was my dream suit because one of my um favorite designer of menswear is Oswald Botang in London. So, you know, I went to London and got fitted for this special suit. Um it was it was kind of like a running joke for everyone at Pixar. They're like, uh, Kemp's going to be gone this weekend. Um, he's going to London to get a suit made. <laughs> and I was like, man, just shut up. This is a, you know, I, I've always wanted an Oswald Boateng original. <laughs> well, now I, I really, I, if nothing else, now I'm rooting for you in this suit. Like, I really want this to happen. Yeah, yeah, well. The bad thing is I don't fit it anymore because I've put on a nice pandemic 15 pounds. So, yeah, I'm going to have to... Um, develop some kind of workout regimen if I ever have any hopes of fitting into it as is or, you know, have it let out or something. I don't know. 
And now with regards to One Night in Miami, I just kind of want to be sure I understand the timeline of the two projects. Like, was it ever overlapping that you were working on both One Night in Miami and Soul at the same time? Yeah, I mean, basically I finished the script for One Night in Miami about three or four. I turned in the script for One Night in Miami about three or four days before my first day at Pixar. So that was back in 2018. Because, you know, Pixar, they tell you, they're like, you know, when you're a new writer, you know terms like exclusivity, but they mean it there. They're like, lock in, you're going to be busy, you're not going to have time to do anything else. Understand that when I first started at Pixar, it was a 12-week job. So I came on board in 2018 with the full understanding that I was going to be wrapped up and back home by Thanksgiving. But of course, things went better than I expected. So I went from being the writer to the co-director, which meant staying through the entire process. And coincidentally, over that period of time, I finished another, basically a polish on the script that the producers took out into the world. Regina came on board. My expectation the entire time was that by the time we got around to filming that film, I would be done at Pixar. But again, once I got made co-director, that wasn't possible. So... We shot One Night in Miami in Louisiana, um, basically over January. It was seven weeks and based mostly February. And we were in the heat of production on Soul. We were, you know, having dailies, really like finaling shots. So God bless him. Jim Morris, um, the head of Pixar and Dana Murray, our producer, and Pete agreed to let me basically commute back and forth so that, I, yes, I was doing double duty for about five weeks where I would fly from Oakland to New Orleans. So I spent about three weeks total of the seven weeks on set in um, One Night in Miami. And and I, yeah, and I was just doing a lot of back and forth. It was very sleepless. I didn't get a lot of sleep for the month of um, February. Let's, let's put it that way. Was there ever a moment where you thought like, I can't do this, like this just is not gonna work? No, no, this was like, your two dream projects happening at the same time. I was like, I'm going to make it work or die trying. And I'm never doing this again. Like I was like, I'll never, (laughs) I'll never pull double duty like this ever again because of how hard it is. But if we pull both of these films off, it will have been worth it. To step back a little bit, just tell me about the adaptation process for One Night in Miami. I mean, first of all, how did you simply find, you know, screenwriting versus playwriting? Well, you know, I'd already done both and done all. You know, I've written screenplays before. I've written in, in, in television. So I respect each form is unique. I tell a lot of people, I mean, we're in the middle of this era when there's so many playwrights who are working in film and television. And I think people might mistakenly assume that because you're good at one, you're going to be good at the other. I found quite the opposite. I feel every time you move into a new medium, you're almost kind of starting over again because there's different structure, there's different rules. You just, you know, you wanna, you gotta learn your craft. But thankfully I'd had a lot of time on my own learning my craft, writing a bunch of garbage. So that at the very least, you know, I, I knew the difference between writing a play, a stage play, and, and writing a, a half hour versus a half hour comedy or a one hour drama or writing a screenplay. That being said, one of the biggest challenges was Yes, I wanted this to be a film. I wanted to open it up. I wanted to be something more cinematic, but I didn't want to lose the very thing that made the story special was that it was your, you get to be a fly on the wall for a private conversation that happens in a hotel room. So um, the decision I came to was that I just wanted to hopefully 
expand the world so that people understood why each of these four men were in the mental place that they were on that night. And also allow people to see some of the positive and negative fallout of the decisions that were made on that night. Things that I wasn't able to do in the play. I mean, when I first spoke to Regina about it, she took the initiative of actually reading the play as well after she read the script. And she told me that she couldn't believe the same guy wrote both. I think that people, yes, they know it's an adaptation of a play, but I don't think they realize how different it is from the play that it's actually adapted from. The play One Night in Miami begins when the four men walk into the hotel room and ends 85 minutes later when they leave. It's real time. So it's 85 minutes real time, starting with them coming into the room and ending with them leaving. The movie is obviously not that. <laughs> in fact, you don't, I don't think you come across a line from the play until 45 minutes into the film. So it's quite different. And it was just deciding on what was the central story that I was trying to tell that just maintained that thing about the play and the play experience that I think made it special for audiences. Because I had the luck of, it's, it's a stage play. You sit amongst an audience and you see how it's affecting people. But that did mean that I had to let go of some things. I think the most popular part of the stage play, like the, the show-stopping part of the stage play, is not in the film just because it doesn't serve the story at all. And that would be, there's a part in the play when we recreate Sam Cooke performing live at the Harlem Square Club, not in the movie at all. And that's like the centerpiece portion of the play that everyone raves about. And it, it just didn't belong. So I had to adjust my thinking and treat my work the way I would treat any, if, if any producer came to me and said, here's a book, here's a play, how would you adapt it? Treat my play the same as I would anyone else's, as a piece of source material. So not be precious about it. I think my background as a journalist and getting some heavy edits makes me not precious about my own writing, so I'm more than happy to let go of things that don't work. But now tell me simply about your discovery of this event, this one night that really happened when Cassius Clay, Malcolm X, Jim Brown, and Sam Cooke are all in a hotel room together how did you come to learn of this event and what to you, how did you sort of see it as like a dramatic story? Yeah, I mean, I stumbled upon it by accident. I was obviously, I'm a voracious reader. I've always been fascinated by all of these men. I happened to be reading a book by the late Mike Marcusi. He was a sports writer. Um, he wrote this great book called um, Redemption Song, Muhammad Ali and the Spirit of the 60s. And it was about the intersection between sports and the civil rights movement. And so that book just has one paragraph. It says, on the night, February 25th, 1964, the night that Cassius Clay defeated Sonny Liston, no one thought he'd actually win, so no party was planned. So he retreated to the Hampton House in the black section of town with his friends Malcolm X, Jim Brown, and Sam Cooke. And after a night of quiet conversation, the next morning he announced that he was in the Nation of Islam. That was what I read. And I was like, you got to be fucking kidding me. That is so awesome. At the time that I read it, which was probably, God, 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, those were like, to me, the four most like iconic, I call them nascent black power. You know, the term black power didn't really exist, but those guys represented what would be come to be known as black power, you know, which is self-empowerment, you know, and, and in very, very different ways, each of the four of them. I already knew about the relationship between Malcolm and Muhammad Ali. That's been well documented. But the Sam Cooke of it all really kind of made me scratch my head because I was going like, wow, I got to learn more about all of these guys. So I initially set out doing research with the intention of writing a book 
about the friendship between these four men, because I was still a journalist when I read this. So I had no idea that the future, what the future held for me as a playwright or a screenwriter. So I was just doing research for fun in the hopes of one day I had a literary agent at the time. So I was like, oh, I'm going to do all this research and pitch a book about the friendship between these four powerful, iconic men. And kind of the structure of it was built around like, this is where black power came from. And it was just one of those things, you know how it is when you're doing research for things, there's, you run into walls. I'm able to string together how they met each other, but there are just gaps, gaps like that night. There's interviews you're not able to get because you're just a reporter. So you can't get through the, like, like I've never spoken to Jim Brown, you know, because they're, they're, I, Ali was alive this whole time, never could get an interview with Ali. There's just layers and layers of people to get through. You get stymied by it and life kind of moves on. So... I don't have to tell you, the journalism industry started contracting. And as this thing that I've been doing for fun on nights and weekends, my hobby of writing creatively started to slowly morph into this next chapter of my life, it seemed like the perfect idea for a story to tell in the realm of fiction. But I, I want to preface it by saying it's fiction 100% informed by fact like taking every single thing I know about each of these four men and have learned about each of these four men in the moments leading up to and the moments right after that night, trying to characterize them as realistic as humanly possible and form the debate around that. That's the thing that I find so fascinating about the story is that, yes, you know this event occurred and you can maybe find out what got those four men to that room, what happened after that night in that room. But the thing that... Your main task, the true work that you've done here, is to imagine their conversation, what they talked about. For you, how did you come to those decisions? I think especially, let's say, the sort of the tension between Sam Cooke and Malcolm X, or the way in which Cassius is really wrestling with his decision to, to announce his Muslim faith. How did you kind of decide what those conversations were going to be like? Well, they started from the conversations I had with my own peers. I mean, ultimately, this is about what social responsibility, if any, does the black fill in the blank, the black athlete, the black artist have to his own people? And that is a discussion that, believe it or not, you know, young black men often have when we're kind of moving up in the world and, and kind of building our lives and building our careers. You don't have to look far to find interviews with black artists who are directors who say, I don't want to be seen as a black this. I just want to be seen as a this. These are, these are discussions you have about how the world is going to perceive you, how you want to be perceived by the world. And basically, all I did was reverse engineer the conflict and debates I'd had with my peers back into the mouths of the men who inspired that way of thinking. Sometimes you want to work within the system. Sometimes you want to burn it all down. <laughs> you know, the reality of it is this is all an internal monologue. As a black creative, it's situational. That's why I wanted to come down at the end of it with the audience, if I'm lucky, seeing, not really knowing who was right. Because I think who is right depends on the situation. There are situations where Malcolm's argument is the right way to go, but there's also situations where Sam's argument is, is the way to go. And in terms of deciding who was going to do what, it's twofold. One, if a producer might have come to me and said, these four guys were here on this night, the way they would want this structured is Muhammad Ali is the most famous person in the world. It's got to be about him. I came at it from this perspective of on this night in 1964, 
what was the power dynamic? And on that night, one, Sam Cooke was the most famous guy there, followed very closely by Jim Brown, okay? So the power dynamic was completely different than our modern, watch seeing it through a modern prism where it's like, oh, of course, Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. Two, their ages. Cassius Clay was 22 years old. Jim Brown was 28. Sam and Malcolm were in their 30s. So I saw this as a classic, your little brother has to make a really important decision and his big brothers are trying to influence them. That was the structure and dynamic I want. No different than if like your 22-year-old little brother's like, I'm joining the Marines. I'm dropping out of college. I'm doing this. So I wanted to have it have the same energy as the energy you would have with a family member when the younger family member and the people who have influenced him up to that point are all debating over the course of his future, if that makes sense. For your awards consideration, Perry Mason, the must-watch HBO original drama starring Emmy Award winner Matthew Reese. IndieWire hails Perry Mason as one of the most beautiful series ever made. Now streaming on HBO Max. As you mentioned, Regina King directed the adaptation. This is her feature film debut. What was it like when she came to the project? Did you make any sort of like changes to the story, the structure? Like what happened to the project once Regina came on board? I expected to make way more changes than I ended up doing. And that's largely because of Regina, because she loved what I've written, which caught me off guard. Again, I'm not naive. Being a screenwriter, a lot of times you you know that someone else is going to come along later and rewrite you. So even in writing the adaptation of this film, I was fully expecting at some point after a director was attached, that director to get another writer and want to go a different direction. And I was just hoping to preserve some kind of structure and be the guy who could like help at least establish a structure. What was a pleasant surprise is that Regina connected to what I'd done. Her notes were always about preserving it and making it more cinematic, but she was innately trying not to change it, which really caught me off guard. Again, I kind of feel like between One Night in Miami and Soul, I've just been like the luckiest first and second time screenwriter in like the history of Hollywood in terms of being wrapped into the process and being treated as a collaborator and being treated supportively as opposed to the way you can sometimes be accustomed to, to, to being treated. And, and so, yeah, she believed in it. She, she took the initiative of also reading the play before we even met. She was still shooting Watchmen in Atlanta, and I was in the middle of Seoul. So I was up in Emeryville in the second apartment that I kept while I was working at Pixar. And we had this great conversation. Again, she wanted to meet me because she was like, I can't believe the same guy who wrote this play wrote this script for the screenplay. And I just wanted to kind of talk to you. And it was very much like a very casual discussion. She told me that she hadn't read anything like that before which I found just flattering because she's been in the business over 30 years. And I don't know how many plays, like how many productions, how many different casts you've seen the play staged with, but the performances in the movie from Kingsley Benadire, Eli Gorey, Aldous Hodge, Leslie Odom Jr., 
they were just fantastic in these roles. What was it like for you to see these performances of those roles that at this point you knew so well? Oh, it was a dream come true because the thing you, you worry about is that there won't be the same camaraderie and you know palpable energy when it's in a film that there was in the stage play, especially considering how quickly we had to do this. There wasn't really rehearsal time. These guys didn't know each other. Kingsley, I believe, was the last lead that we cast. And I think he was cast about two weeks before the first start of shooting. So, I mean, there was no time at all. We just kind of, the rehearsals were happening right before we would shoot a particular scene. So, of course, you worry that like, ah, oh, these guys with, with a stage production, the, the cast has, you know, a couple of months of just spending time with just each other to really build a certain camaraderie that makes it feel so believable that these men were really friends. And again, it's a testament to the incredible cast that we landed on. And this is a cast that, you know, Regina handpicked through a process. I mean, I was there for a lot of the auditions and there were little things, intangible things in each of these guys that she saw. And what she ended up doing with them made me a believer. You know, now that the film is done, it's kind of hard for me to imagine anyone else having been in any of these roles. The play was first produced in 2013, and yet when people have been watching a few public shows that it's had already, everyone responds to it so much as a product of 2020, something that seems to be addressing what's happened in this country over the past eight, nine months. How do you feel about that? What do you make of the fact that this play that you wrote, you know, more than seven years ago is now speaking so directly to really our right now? I mean, that's sad because honestly, when it debuted in 2013, people said that it spoke to that moment. For those who don't remember, uh, Trayvon Martin happened in 2013. So the George Zimmerman, Trayvon Martin um, verdict came out and people said, wow, this play really speaks to it. When it played in Baltimore in 2015, people said it spoke to that moment. The Freddie Gray thing happened in Baltimore that year. I mean, when it played in London, I, it's, it's kind of sad that... Every production that the play has had, the features around it talk about how it's so timely. And when they say timely, tied to some tragic events that have happened within a month or two or of the of the play or some movement. And 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 I think that I mean I look forward to the day when it is a time capsule piece, but I wonder if that day is ever going to come. And I say that just because. You know, sometimes in the morning you're you're listening to music or you're taking stuff in and you listen to the lyrics and you're like, wow, this song was written 40 years ago, 50 years ago, and it still speaks to right now. Sam Cooke, A Change Is Gonna Come, was written in the 1960s, and it still speaks to this exact moment. So I guess the positive is that I'm 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 happy that it taps into what people are genuinely feeling in my attempt to tap into these men and their humanity that it taps into something that people are genuinely feeling but that comes with a pretty healthy dose of melancholy let's put it that way and then I want to be sure that we talk about soul my my colleague at the time Sonia Kelly wrote a terrific piece that's sort of about the background of the film and the way in which it really has transformed through production originally the story was much more focused on a, a character that's voiced by Tina Fey but then because of your efforts and some other people are brought onto the project it's just become this story of jazz it's much more about black life tell me about that process because I think of a, a, a place like Pixar 
that's a big company making these animated films is a real long and complicated process. Were you surprised that they were sort of as essentially nimble and res- responsive as they seem to have been in, in making this story? I mean, I was surprised in terms of their responsiveness to me because I'm like, why the hell would you listen to me? You know, like you're the new guy, but not surprised in terms of the Pixar of it all. In many ways, that's what makes Pixar different. I tell people that no one else, no other company would make an animated film on this scale about this other than Pixar, at least domestically. And and I mean like scale in terms of the budget, the size of it, the story that we were trying to tell. And a lot of it is because, look, Pixar encourages filmmakers to come with original ideas. And no one is more in love with originality than Pete Docter. You know, of course, you know, you people know Pete from his films. They know Monsters, Inc. They, you know, they know Up and Inside Out. You know, he was the writer on WALL-E, you know. And some of those films have had subsequent sequels like Monsters, Inc. But Pete's never done the sequel. Pete kind of like does something and then wants to avoid everything he's done before. So if anything, it was kind of tough early on in the process keeping those caution cones up because you might pitch an idea and Pete's like, oh, but I did that. I did that in a movie once, so I don't want to do that anymore. And you realize that he just wants originality. And in a place that's kind of known for their originality, the only way to stay original is to start swinging, really swinging for the fences. But the thing is, they started off swinging from the fences. So I think that Pixar is really, really a unique place. I mean, it's family to me. And I know like the next six, seven films that are currently in development, which are all top secret after Luca. But I can say that that originality and encouraging originality is going to be even more evident going down the road. And a lot of the things that I thought would have been like poo-pooed, those were the things that would make uh, Pete go like, yes, that's, that's different. Like, let's do that. There were times in our brain trust meetings where I would just jokingly say like, huh, who'd have ever thought we'd be making a Terrence Malick movie for kids? And I said it like totally tongue in cheek, but at times it felt that way because it felt that crazy. Like saying this, I hope this doesn't discourage anyone from seeing Soul. Like Soul is ultimately still a family movie. And it was influenced, honestly, by the family films that we cherished growing up. Films like It's a Wonderful Life, you know? In fact, Early on in the process of Soul, sometimes I talk to Pete and go, are we being too earnest, too corny with this story? Because, you know, we're ultimately telling a story about like life itself is the gift. You know, <laughs> like, like, is this way too earnest? Like, is, is anyone going to want to sit through this? And it's just coincidental that the world has gone through such a crucible time. I mean, a pandemic, no one could have predicted that, that just appreciating even being alive in the the relationships and the small moments we have has become something that people have cherished. But yeah, the originality of it is very unique to Pixar. I think usually you have to go to work from like the studio Ghibli's of the world to be able to be that creative and original. And Pixar encourages that kind of creativity, but on a scale that you're not accustomed to being allowed to kind of swing for the fences like that. Tell me about your affinity for this character, Joe Gardner. He's about your age. He comes from where you come from. How did you come to have this this closeness, this affinity for him? Oh, yeah. I mean, when they first brought me up there and showed me a rough reel, and again, this is like 2D storyboards with scratch voice acting. It wasn't even a Pixar movie yet. You know, it was about 40 minutes long. 
the bones of the story were there, but, you know, it still had a ways to go. And probably the least developed character was Joe. And I was like, if he's supposed to be the main character, I'm like, I don't know anything about him. And I think they just hadn't gotten to the place where they were comfortable to kind of fill that in. So for me, that's why I wanted to do the film. I, I went like, well, how old is this guy supposed to be? And they said 45. And at the time that they said this, I was 45 years old. And I was like, obviously it's set in New York. I was like, when is this supposed to take place? They were like, today. Now in the boards that I saw, I took it as like the 1960s. And a lot of it was because of some of the dialogue and some of the, the stuff people were saying things like, hey, cool cat, you're groovy. And I was just like, when is this happening? That's the process. You know what I mean? You have to do the bad version to get to the good version. So I was like, wait a minute. So you're telling me like this guy is literally my age, my generation from my hometown. Okay. I just had a million ideas like right off the bat to like feed into this character because we'd be discussing things like people would ask like, well, Joe is a jazz musician. So we're assuming like, would Joe know who Kanye West is? And it's like, Ask me that dumb question. Yeah, like, you know what I mean? It, was, it, it seems so crazy because my generation, Generation X hip-hop heads in New York adore jazz, you know? In fact, that's the time in New York's history when hip-hop was sampling jazz more than any anything else. So, you know, it's, it's just a coincidence that Pete was inspired to make Joe a jazz musician because of a quote from Herbie Hancock. Similarly, I see Herbie Hancock as, like, probably the most sampled jazz artist in hip hop, like everyone samples Herbie Hancock. So it was just kind of making it feel real, like, like a real human being, while still trying to tell this very emotional story that comes from this very like pure place that asks in many ways, some of the same kind of questions that I was exploring in One Night in Miami, which is like, it's, it's about the artist's journey. You know what I mean? Like making the decisions to take the leap of faith. Like it's a different side of it. You know, it's not about the social responsibility side, but it is about the psyche of like the artist. But also much of Joe's story in the movie is about your big break could come at any time. And the idea of sort of like keeping the faith of the thing that you want to do or whatever it is that drives you and seeing where you are right now with these two movies coming out. I mean, it's hard not to see that connection. Do you feel like that that aspect of Joe's story is something that you brought to it? And did it feel personal to you? It felt very personal because the only reason you're sitting here talking to me is because I hung in for several years past my sell-by date and was delusional enough to keep on pursuing this thing that almost everyone around me told me, like, you're too old, give up. My first TV writer's room was Star Trek Discovery. So I was a staff writer. You have to understand, I was a staff writer who was older than the showrunner. So you kind of look around the room and go like, oh boy, like this is not... (laughs) (laughs) this is going to be kind of a hard, (laughs) you know, go of it because, you know, the the one ism that is the most universal in in all of this is ageism. So I was already kind of like aged out of starting a career, which is something that I think was what we were trying to get into Joe. Like, you know, not only is it past your sell-by date, but you actually are doing something else really well. You are a good teacher. So I think the Joe character, yes, that really does come from a personal place. But I think the character who most kind of represents me is a much more minor character in the film, and it's Des the Barber, which is a character I came up with who 
He wanted to be a veterinarian. He ended up being a barber and he found satisfaction in that. That's equally, you know, influenced by kind of like my my life experiences, because, again, this wasn't my plan. If you would have spoken to me as a little kid, I would have said I wanted to be a, a firefighter. You know, if you would have spoken to me as a freshman in college, I would have said that I wanted to be a lawyer. If you would have spoken to me at 21, 22 years old, I would have said I'm going to be a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. That's what I'm going to do till the day I die. So it's this idea of finding new passions and finding new love. That's also very specific to me. At the end of the day, the thing that I tell everyone is that I've always been a storyteller. Writing is the one thing that I've been encouraged by people to do because they said I'm good at it. I don't think people understand how much the things that we do as creatives, as artists, how little positive reinforcement we get. I know you get the opposite of positive reinforcement often as a journalist. And so you kind of get accustomed to it. You develop thick skin. And I'm just lucky in that that thick skin that I developed from 17 years in the trenches has served me well creatively because I just kind of plow forward and chase after the best stories, stories that excite me, stories that I'm passionate about, regardless of genre, regardless of medium. I look to work with people that I can learn from and that make me better. And I'm just incredibly lucky that with One Night in Miami and Soul, I couldn't pick better people to work with and work for and work alongside and collaborate with than Pete Doctor and Regina King. And now, Kemp, as we've been talking to people recently, you know, everybody's stuck at home. Everybody seems to be just watching a lot of stuff. And so is there anything that you've watched recently that you would want to recommend to people or that really sort of like has knocked you out? Um, let's see. I watched The Queen's Gambit. I really enjoyed that. Oh, um, I recently discovered the, the Nick Kroll cartoon Big Mouth. And man, did I fall in love with that. I mean, that was just like second coming of South Park to me, just dynamite. So I'm excitedly waiting for season four, you know, watching Mandalorian and Baby Yoda like everybody else. Let's see. Um, I really enjoyed Nomadland. I enjoyed Concrete Cowboy. There is this documentary I saw called MLK FBI. I quite enjoyed that. Um... I enjoyed it. this other animated film I saw called Wolf Walkers. Really, really big fan of that one. I, I really enjoyed it. It was really sweet. I, I've been rewatching a lot of dark stuff like um, No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood and The Phantom Thread. Just a, a big uh, P.T. Anderson fan. What was the other one that I that I watched? Um, oh, God. Um, I, I recently watched Yojimbo again, which was really just kind of surprisingly funny at times. <laughs> Elements of it, just the, yeah, I, I, I really enjoy Yojimbo. It's weird because I also watch a lot of, I've been going back into the vault and watching old movies. Like I recently watched Back to the Future again for like the first time in 15 years, which I don't know, it's just, you really don't do realize how everything is of its time. Let's see, but I'm like everyone else in America, I'm watching The Great British Bake Off, like, you know, hey, man, it's like they're nice to each other and are helpful. So that's just refreshing. It's like, hey, <laughs> I don't even like baked goods that much. But, you know, I can appreciate the artistry in that. Mark, I'm starting to really feel like I should stop complaining about what's on my plate when Kemp has just, like, achieved so much in the past, like, couple years. Like, 
Can you imagine doing that? I mean, we do it to some extent, but not like that. I mean, I can't imagine the work involved in making one movie, but to have two movies that you're, you know, sort of toggling between and then to have them coming out basically at the same time, that just seems wild to me. Well, and this idea of not knowing exactly what the conversation was like between these men, but knowing this event happened and sort of having to do research to really imagine what would be coming out of their mouths when they are talking to each other. That was really fascinating to sort of hear him describe like what that was like piecing together. But I think that's also an example of where his journalism background sort of comes into play of sort of being able to kind of know what questions to ask even of himself and like what those conversations might have been like and also what he wanted them to be in the way that that's, I think that's one of the reasons why One Night in Miami just feels so contemporary and like feels like people are talking to today, even though those are conversations that in the drama are happening in the 1960s. And I really love that he's he has been spending this time watching the Great British Bake Off. That is what really spoke to me. It always comes back to reality shows with you, Yvonne. <laughs> and have you watched anything recently? What, what what have you been watching? Well, I did a watch of Stepmom. I had to rent it because it's not on any platforms that I have. And, you know, this is more TV related, but I've been watching the new season of Dickinson, which is really fun. Uh, what have you been watching? Uh, you know, I just recently watched a movie called Another Round. It's by the Danish filmmaker Thomas Vinterberg, and it stars Mads Mikkelsen. You know, he's known to American audiences from Hannibal or from his role in uh, Casino Royale. And it, it's 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 funny. It's almost like a midlife like bro comedy, except it also is a Danish drama that's about these four high school teachers who decide to sort of like, as an experiment, one of them, they're going to just be drunk all the time. And that they're, so with the idea that somehow that your body is always 0.05% blood alcohol away from what it should be. So you kind of have to boost yourself up a little bit. And it like is funny in parts, but it also gets quite dark. It is Danish. And uh, it really mads. Mickelson is just fantastic in it. So it's, I, I would heartily recommend you watch another round. Okay, I will do that. I'm going to put that on my list. And uh, I'm looking forward to being back here with you next week for another round of our podcast. And what are you? who are you going to be talking to, Yvonne? Well, Mark, next week I sit down with Hugh Grant, who stars in the HBO miniseries The Undoing. And if you watched it, it probably made any viewings of Love Actually over the holidays a little harder. Nothing could be more stupid, moronic, really, than to look at... Twitter about yourself and your work because you can only get bruised and smashed and uh, there's plenty of that. My God, Hugh looks 180 years old. He looks like crumpled newspaper. He aged like milk. <laughs> it's all savage stuff. Get that chat with Hugh in our very next episode. The Envelope, the podcast, is hosted by me, Ivan Villarreal, and by my colleague, Mark Olson. Our producer is Shannon Lynn, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our audio engineer is Mike Heflin, and special thanks to Mike for making our theme song. If you like The Envelope, the podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star review on Apple. It really does help. The Envelope is created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe. 
because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Mark, but like now I feel like, I mean, obviously this would have less historical and societal like importance, but we need to write a play in this pandemic. We should write about having to do a podcast from our, well, for me in my bedroom 